0: Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 2nd, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this conversation, author Nick Bunker, in conversation with historian Carol Birkin, explores the early life of founding father Benjamin Franklin.
1: Thank you. Hello and welcome. You're going to enjoy this book. And you're going to enjoy hearing Nick talk about it. Uh, I want to get right into it because I have a lot of questions, and I'm afraid I might not get to all of them. So <clears throat> you subtitled your book The Birth of Ingenuity. Can you explain what this meant in Franklin's era, and is there a modern equivalent? I thought maybe entrepreneurship, but that didn't seem to exactly fit, so I'm... I'm hoping you'll tell me.
0: Well, thank you, Carol. Um, it goes back to England in the 17th century, uh, 1660, 1670, 1680, which is when Franklin's father, Josiah, and his uncles were working in London as dyes of silk, um, and they were also active in, in uh, non-conformist religious assemblies. Now, at that particular point, the word ingenuity had come seriously into fashion in England. Now, ingenuity, coming from the Latin, obviously is a word that had been around for for centuries, but you start to see it becoming a prevalent theme uh, in English pamphleteering and poetry and scientific writing mm-hmm. about that period, about 1660, about the same period as the Royal Society was being created in London and Sir Isaac Newton was starting to make his first uh, discoveries. And what it signified in um, ingenuity really was a kind of combination of things. It was kind of a hybrid of skills with the hands, skills with the eyes, skills with the brain, uh, skills with the mechanical arts... And also something which which also um, had a relationship to theoretical work, work in in theoretical physics. Isaac Newton would be the perfect example Mm -hmm. because obviously Newton was a very great mathematician, great astronomer, great theorist about gravitation and optics and much else, but also somebody who worked closely with people who made apparatus, with scientific instrument makers, uh, clocksmiths who were also scientific instrument makers. So really it's all about the kind of coming together of very highly sophisticated skills in in crafts, the making Mm -hmm. of watches and so on, scientific instruments, and also um,
1: more abstract intellectual endeavour. So by the time our young Benjamin came uh, onto the scene, this had been a standard for quite a while. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you can see a lot of this as being part of the prehistory of the British Industrial Revolution. And effectively, I think what Franklin was doing in, say, the 1740s, which is a key period when he became a scientist, was he was trying to replicate in America the kind of scientific stroke industrial culture that had started to come into existence in England circa 1660, 1670. That's really what it's
1: about. And what role did his father play in shaping uh, his approach to both his profession, his, his artisanal profession, but also his attitude toward social and political ideas.
0: Well, Franklin always speaks with greatest respect about his father, Josiah. Um, It's pretty clear when one goes beneath the surface that there were periods of tension between them. For example, there's quite a long period of about five years in the late 1730s, early 1740s, when there's no correspondence that survives between Franklin and the rest of his family. And my suspicion is that some of that may have been destroyed because there were tensions. But Josiah was a very important figure for Franklin. Um, he was born 1657, uh, in other words, one year before the death of Oliver Cromwell. And so Josiah is someone who puts Franklin in touch with the world of England in the, in the third quarter of the, of the mm-hmm. 17th century, which is this crucial point I make. Now, Josiah had originally come from village, country village in Northamptonshire, but he actually trained as a dyer of silk in London. For seven years, and this is a quite an important discovery, which I came upon by chance, wasn't expecting it in the records in London, that Josiah had actually trained in London. Because what it means is that Vary's father, not only was he connected with this kind of culture of ingenuity that I'm talking about, but also, of course, he was connected with London.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, London
0: later would become a great passion of Franklin's. And what I've been able to show is that actually this actually went back before he was born. Uh-huh. This London connection, which is terribly important, was something that went back to his parents and his, to his uncles.
1: It's, it's, it's so interesting to me because most people who write about Franklin write about Franklin in the prime of his career. That is, they write about him as a diplomat. They write about him as a political figure. They write about him as a political theorist. But you have gone back to Franklin in his becoming years. What made you want to do that?
0: Well, I suppose partly it's simply that I'm one of those people who's always most interested in somebody's early life. I mean, I remember one of the first grown-up books I read when I was about 11 or 12 was uh, Winston Churchill's Early Life, My Early Life, which was published in 1930, which is a wonderful book. I mean, full of all sorts of wonderful stories about his career in the army and so on and so forth, and very funny stories about his time at Harrow School. So that's one thing. But, but it's more than that, really. I mean, the point is that... As far as I can see, the, the, the kind of key defining moment in Franklin's life, the huge, the biggest turning point in his life was winter of 1746 to 47, when he was just about to turn 41, and that's when he began his electoral experiments. So this book is about saying, well, how did he get to that point? Uh. Up to that point, he's a, he's a successful printer, successful journalist, successful social figure in, in Philadelphia, highly respected in the Middle Colonies, and then suddenly he becomes a world-famous scientist in two or three years. That's the question. How do you get to that point, that, that he could be the founder of American science in a way that no one else was? Mm-hmm. And so that means you have to go back and say, well, what was it in his background, his family, his circumstances in Boston then Philadelphia, and in his own makeup that permitted him to emerge in that way? So that's the question we're trying to get at. And then you see it was because he was successful in his science, that he had the kind of confidence and momentum to, mm-hmm. to propel himself forward into politics as well.
1: So he he does find mentors and patrons along the way. I mean, it, it's not simply that he rose all on his own, as I think almost no one does, actually. Who are some of the... Why could he find these people who would be so attached? The only equivalent I know of is Alexander Hamilton, who the people of St. Croix raised money. It was sort of the GoFundMe uh, 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 activity of the 18th century to send him to school in America. I mean, they were, they were his fan club, in effect. How does Franklin win people over like that?
0: Well, the people he won over you know, were very important in Pennsylvania at the time, but they were people who were kind of forgotten. Not least because he didn't actually say very much about in his autobiography. And there were political reasons for that because by that stage he had become sort of estranged from those particular...
1: Yes, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but the thing I loved about your book is you make the point, some of us, when we try to teach the autobiography, point out that it's not the God's truth throughout. But you're wonderful, I think, in the book at, at saying, mm, there's a gap here. Or, mm, I wonder why he didn't talk about this. And then, and then giving an analysis that, that tells us why Franklin chooses to create his life in that autobiography the way he does. And I think that's a tremendous strength uh, of the book. Mm. Well,
0: with regard to the patrons, the thing is this. Uh, there were two people in Pennsylvania to whom he was especially close, uh, James Logan and Andrew Hamilton. Andrew Hamilton, I'm afraid to say, has no relation whatever to Alexander Hamilton. I wish he was. I wish he was. Um, (laughs) Now, Logan is scarcely mentioned at all in the autobiography. Now, Logan was an exceptionally interesting character, and he's actually having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. He was a Quaker from Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. he was a self made self-taught man and he became the kind of right-hand man of the Penn family who were the owners of Pennsylvania. Now Logan was an exceptionally intelligent man, taught himself Latin, Greek, Hebrew and he left behind a huge corpus of papers at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. Now anyone who goes into that period soon comes across Logan but he's, he hasn't really received the sort of press that he deserves. As I say, it's changing at the moment. There's no question that, that scholars are really rediscovering Logan in a big way. Now, he was terribly important for Franklin's development. Franklin um, and he were brought together partly, really, by the fact that they both respected each other's intellect. It's quite remarkable that the letters between Franklin and Logan, even from the early days when Franklin was only about 25, show that Logan really respected him. Now, Logan obviously needed a printer, uh-huh. for printing his own books, which Franklin did, but also they shared common interests in science and in engineering and so on, and in defence of the frontier. And that's a really important point. Logan, as I say, was de- kind of deleted from the autobiography, but there were good reasons for that. It was because by that time, the Logan family, not Logan himself, he was dead, long since dead, were on the other side of Franklin in Pennsylvania politics. The other man is Andrew Hamilton, who was a wonderful character, actually. I mean, he is he's mentioned a little bit more. But he was this kind of foul-mouthed, heavy drinking, uh, very aggressive trial lawyer. He was probably the finest lawyer in the colonies in the 1730s and 40s. Uh, died in 1741. Very famous for the, the Zenger case. This was a very important case that oh, established yes. freedom, of, freedom of the press. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a landmark case that's still referred to. You know, in, 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 in media law in America. And he was the attorney in that case to won the battle. And he was also Speaker of the House of Representatives in Pennsylvania. And he and Franklin became very close indeed. Um, he wasn't really a man of the people. He was a real estate speculator. He was a successful machine politician. But he and Franklin became very close. And when, in fact, when Hamilton died in the early 1740s, Franklin then had a problem. He had to find other patrons. Uh, and that Because it was essentially, you couldn't survive in the 18th century without patrons and friends. It was simply that kind of a world.
1: Mm-hmm. Now... Franklin comes across as often pretty naive, which is forgiven in a young man. But can you cite a few examples of his naivete? Because we, (coughs) I I always have a mental picture of Santa Claus and Franklin, you know, going like this, both of them wise and clever. and, And here we have this young man who really makes some terrible mistakes, in judgment, and in. Uh, can you share just a couple of those instances?
0: Well, I, he had some very interesting friends. I mean, Franklin had a lot of very close friends. And he was attracted, I think, by people who were a bit quirky, a bit eccentric, a bit unusual. Mm-hmm. One of his best friends was a man who I think is a fascinating character uh, called James Ralph. And Ralph is probably English, but it ended up in Philadelphia. He was a little bit older than, than Franklin. And Ralph um, was an amateur poet. Not just an amateur poet, actually, he was quite an accomplished poet. And Ralph was determined to make a career of himself for himself in London. And effectively, Franklin, he sponged off Franklin. And Franklin actually mm-hmm. ended up lending him quite a lot of money. Uh, Ralph was completely unreliable at this stage in his life. Um, and that was a big mistake. Uh, uh, there were other instances where, essentially, Franklin was simply far too trusting as a mm-hmm. young man. And he got himself into trouble uh, on a number of occasions. Um, Which essentially, that was really the kind of issue. He's just simply too trusting, a bit naive, a bit gullible. And also didn't really understand all the political manoeuvres that were going on around him in Pennsylvania. I mean, one of the key points in his growing up and and becoming mature was, so to speak, that he he, he started to understand the politics of Pennsylvania far more than he had in his teens.
1: Now, we know that he went to England, uh, where he... I think the euphemism is, sowed his wild oats. But you tell us his stay in London was much more than carousing. Can you explain?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I what happened here was that I, um, I it was in Boston a number of years ago and I was at a reception at Massachusetts Historical Society And someone was telling me who had attended Bernard Balin, Professor Balin of Harvard's graduate Mm -hmm. seminars on colonial world. He said to me that Balin had always told his students that he thought this was an absolutely crucial period of Franklin's life, this 18 months in London, seventy twenty-five to 6. Now, I'd already reached that conclusion, but hearing that this is what, I assumed that Professor Balin would at some stage write a book about it. But but I thought, yes, I absolutely agree with that. And so I decided to really look into it. And the key point was this, that, that Franklin was what? He was 19 when he, um, he went to London for the first time from Philadelphia. And there were several things he got from being in London. First of all, it was a kind of graduate school of the printing trade. Mm-hmm. Now, Franklin had been educated and trained as a printer in, in Boston, but there were not, with nothing like the kind of input of skill and, and expertise that you would have in London. Things like engraving, for example. Now, engraving... Hugely important in the 18th century. If you wanted to make maps, you wanted to illustrate books. There were really no competent engravers in the colonies. In London, Franklin could meet very high-caliber engravers, and he actually learned some engraving himself. He also could meet scientists, and he did. I mean, he famously met Sir Hans Sloan, who was the founder of the British Museum. Uh, Franklin just wrote a letter to him, offering him a chunk of asbestos. Franklin brought this chunk <laughs> of asbestos over from America. <laughs> thinking, well, you know, it's just a little asbestos purse. And he brought this over thinking he might be able to offer it to somebody in London, a colonial curiosity. And he wrote to Sir Hans Sloane, saying, would you like this asbestos purse? And Franklin was intending to sell it to him, which he did that asbestos purse is still in the Natural History Museum in London. Uh I don't think it's actually on display, but it's still there, because that was the collection of Sir Hans Sloane, the founder, as I say, of the the museum. Um, That's very important as well, because Sloane really was, I mean, after Newton, Sloane was like number two scientist in Great Britain. Uh, Great botanist, of course. Uh, That's what he's famous for. And also the author of a superb journal of his Journeys to the West Indies, which Franklin kind of was influenced by, and Franklin wrote his own journal of his George Back to America, yeah, okay. which is heavily influenced by Sloan. These are extraordinary connections for a young man of that age to make. And so he really took to London at a time that was also very interesting. I mean, it's basically the period of the Beggar's Opera. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the Beggar's Opera, these great masterpieces of English literature that were appearing at the time, Pope, Swift, John Gay, Franklin plunged into that world. And he actually knew people who knew those, those particular... Um, artists.
1: Wow! Now, on page one eighty-six, you tell us that Franklin was acutely—I I wrote the page down because it really struck me—acutely aware of his sins, and I thought, <laughs> <laughs> so what were his sins, well, I mean, actually, and so what does I his consciousness what er- of I mean, the- it was Errors,
0: actually, on sins, but but yeah, he he, he gives a list. I mean, lists the various errors that he committed. Um, And, um, you know, these errors, for one thing, for example, he'd made this really silly thing he'd done. He had had taken on a commission to collect debts in Pennsylvania on behalf of a silversmith from Rhode Island called Mr. Vernon. Uh, He did collect the debt, but unfortunately, Franklin dipped into the money himself. And this was some of the money that he lent to James Ralph and to various other friends. That wasn't a good idea. (laughs) <laughs> because at the time, you know, I, there, were no, there was a, there was a shortage of, of bullion in the colonies. There wasn't very much by way of coinage, so everybody used to deal in IOUs and things. So your word was your bond, you know. Right. And if you if you if you if you showed that you were untrustworthy, you had a really big problem. Fortunately, Mr. Vernon seems to have been a very forgiving sort of soul, and he allowed Franklin to to repay the debt after many years. He had to pay the interest and so on. Other things he did was he did attempt to seduce James Ralph's um, mistress in, in London in 1725. That wasn't very clever. Um, <laughs> a few other things he did. Um, he, Of course, he felt unhappy about the way he treated Deborah, who later became his wife.
1: As well because, he should.
0: Because he had kind of abandoned her when he went to London, and mm-hmm. she had ended up making a very bad marriage to a, a chap who turned out to be a bigamist and then disappeared off probably to the West Indies. So there are a number of these things. Um, what I don't see in Franklin is what you might call Puritan guilt. A lot of people see that in Frank. I don't personally think Puritanism had very much to do with Franklin's development. There are plenty of people who feel guilty without being Puritans. Um, you can be Jewish. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, well, indeed. Right? It's, a, it's a kind of a universal phenomenon. But there's no question he did. Uh, I also suspect I've, there is some evidence that there were quite a lot of other things he did which he simply doesn't put into his mouth.
1: But what does it tell us about Franklin that he lists them and he's concerned about them? He writes them down.
0: Well, I think this leads on to something which is a really important theme of the book, which is to do with success and failure. You see, we think of Franklin as being a great success. You know, he was a man who made an enormous success of his life as scientist, world famous writer, and politician, and all the mm-hmm. rest of it. Um, and he was a survivor. I mean, he, you know, he's born 1706, he dies 1790, so he's 84, 30 years older than the average life expectancy at the time. So he's a big success. But one of the things I, I point out, he also writes a lot about failure. And I think Franklin was actually very frightened of failure. I think he, he went around with a kind of almost phobic fear of failure and destitution. And you can find this on a number of occasions in the book because he writes a lot about other people who did fail.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: he was fascinated by the question of how had he been such a success when so many of his friends had, were either failures or they had died of drink or whatever. And I think that's part of it, you see. The, the, this thing about his errors was he was continually looking, examining his own conduct to see, to see traces, if you like, of failure inside himself
1: uh, in seeking to correct them as well. I, it, you have, I think, a unique understanding of the central themes that run through the autobiography. Uh, can you talk about that? I, I've never seen the autobiography analyzed as well as you do in your book.
0: Well, this point I make about success and failure is absolutely critical. One of the things that I was very... If if you come to this as as an Englishman, as a Brit, with the kind of general English type of literary culture, there are certain things that are very striking about the autobiography that an American might not necessarily see. And one of the things is immediately I see Dickens in the autobiography. Mm. Um, Dickens is really the only English author I can think of who actually was influenced by Franklin and read Franklin. Uh, Thomas Carlyle, Dickens' great friend, certainly was studied Carly- studied Franklin. And in David Copperfield, you can find actually echoes of Frank. I think he was influenced by by by, by, mm-hmm. by Franklin's life. And the importance of that is that in Dickens, there's an awful lot about the fear of failure, the fear of destitution, the fear of sliding down the heap, the fear of ruin, which of course goes back to Dickens's chart in the debtor's prison. And I can see something of that in Franklin. And the other thing I can see in Franklin in the autobiography is something which, which I spent a lot of time on, which is the connections between Franklin and William Hogarth. Hmm. See, one of the great themes of Hogarth's work is, is the same sort of thing. I mean, the great cycle of engravings that, that Hogarth produced in the 1740s, industry and idleness, mm-hmm. where on the one hand you've got the industrious apprentice who works terribly hard, marries the boss's daughter, and becomes Lord Mayor of London. And then you've got the idle apprentice who... Um, does exactly the reverse and ends up hanging on the gibbet at Tyburn. Now, I see Franklin's autobiography as very much that kind of book. It's a so book it's of the either form.
1: or. Yes, There's exactly. No he's very
0: worried ground. about the fact that he might have slid down the scale. Uh, by the time he gets to write the autobiography in 1771, he's sort of secure. Mm-hmm. But there had been long periods where he hadn't been secure, and he had seen his friends fail, uh, that's, and he gives a whole series of there are a series of examples in his book of people who had failed, mm-hmm. and he's very curious as to why they have failed and I have succeeded. But always the back of all this is the fear of of sliding down into the kind of into the into the sort of uh, into the, the world of the poor.
1: Now I know that you had a connection to the Freudian Institute. I went for two years here in New York to the Freudian Institute. Uh, uh, and realized that I could not possibly be a therapist because I would never shut up long enough (laughs) for the patient to tell me anything. But how has that, that certainly has influenced the biographies that I've written and, and the kinds of things that I am attuned to that I think sometimes colleagues are not. How has it influenced you? Would you say that, you would not have understood Franklin's character as well or his motivations if you hadn't studied?
0: Well, I was, I was, I was on the board of the Freud Museum in London, which is the museum, where, where the house where Freud died in 1939. I was on the board. I ended up as chairman of the board but for a few years. But the thing was, I, through that experience, I'm aware, I, I tend to not to push psychoanalysis too far in, mm-hmm. in, in the book or sort of talk mm-hmm. about it very much, because I'm aware of just how divisive a subject is mm-hmm. and how many, how many qualms and doubts so many people have about it. Um, and also how sort of it can become a kind of a interminable. Um, as I always say when I was on the board, I used to say uh, there are 435 psychoanalysts in, the, in Great Britain and if you laid them all end to end, they still wouldn't reach uh, a conclusion. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you know, if, you, if you try being chairman of a board where 30% of the members are practicing psychoanalysts, you know, you, you know what sort of purgatory is. Um, <laughs> but, these are, right. um, but the point is, there is only really one place in the book where um, this appears, and that is to do with Franklin's reading as a teenager. Now, he was astonishingly precocious in the amount of the breadth and the depth of his reading mm-hmm. of, of all kinds of subjects, but especially what you might call technical philosophy. I mean, really you know, heavy-duty technical philosophy of the kind that one would study today at Harvard or Cambridge or wherever. And so much so that when he was 20, living in London, he actually wrote his own philosophical treatise, which showed that he had very thoroughly absorbed the work of John Locke and various other philosophers. And I was very struck by this, the fact that he read so voraciously and so deeply and so widely, and that he understood so much Mm -hmm. at such a young age, you know, by the age of 18 or so. And what I've thought about there was what it made me think about was something Anna Freud wrote. Anna Freud wrote a book um, The Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense in about 1937. And she has a chapter called interli- about what she called intellectualization at puberty. And the point she makes is that adolescents are capable often of these astonishing feats of intellectual um, achievement. You know, and we can all remember that when we were at school, we could do kind of equations and things that we couldn't have a <coughs> chance of doing now, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, I can't, and couldn't Well, do Well, there we are. well was good But anyway, <laughs> so she wrote this chapter, and the point he makes is that, that, that this kind of intellectualization, this kind of really intense um, uh, focus on really abstract intellectual subjects of the kind that Franklin had, does, is, is a visible phenomenon. And she attributes it to a kind of a defense mechanism. It's an attempt to sort of to defend oneself against the feeling of being at the prey of all kinds of powerful mm-hmm. instincts in adolescence. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting. That's the only time in the book where uh, I use the. Uh, the other thing, of course. Psychologist does do is just just genuinely um, gives you a sense that there's more going on inside people than meets the eye, which is essentially true of the autobiography.
1: Right, right. So let's get to the crucial question here. Would you characterize Franklin as destined to be a revolutionary? Was he by nature a radical, or do you think he? was in many ways a conservative.
0: Well, there was really no reason for him to be a radical, really, until until the 1760s mm-hmm. or 1770s. Um, during the earlier period, in the 1720s and 30s, there was no reason for him to be a radical or revolutionary because the most powerful people in, in Pennsylvania, the ones I mentioned earlier, shared his, his views and beliefs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were all committed to religious freedom, at least for Protestants anyway, not Catholics. Um, They were committed to low taxation. The taxes were very low in Pennsylvania because there was no militia because they were Quakers. Uh, They were committed to frontier expansion. They were committed to allowing immigration because they wanted to fill up the the, the territory, not least so they could take higher rents from the properties they own, all this sort of thing. Uh, So there was no reason for him to, to disagree with any of this. I think what happened later on was that essentially as the 1740s and 50s went by Franklin became more and more committed to his goal of seeing um, an ingenious America. Mm -hmm. An America with an infrastructure of of scientific and other institutions of learning and so forth. And a prosperous America. And also America that was expanding westwards into the Ohio Mm -hmm. Valley especially. Now, that only really became an issue with the British if he came to believe that couldn't be done within the British Empire.
1: Well, the proclamation line of
0: 1763 must have really gotten his attention. The issue of the frontier. I mean, even if there had been no Boston Tea Party, eventually there would have been a confrontation about Western expansion. Mm -hmm. When he was living in London in the 70s, you can actually, when you chart his correspondence, you can see that over as each letter goes by, he gets more and more exasperated with the British, and he more and more convinces himself that America can't fulfill those aspirations with the British Empire. I think there was one interesting moment when he went to Ireland. Uh, Franklin went to Ireland on holiday, summer holiday. I think it was 71 or 72. And, of course, the Irish looked upon themselves as being in a sort of similar situation to America Mm -hmm. in relation to Mm -hmm. the British Empire. And, indeed, legally, they were. There were close similarities between the situation legally. And Franklin went to Ireland, and he was horrified by what he saw. He was horrified by the, um, the, uh, the, the poverty he saw in Ireland, the backwards of Ireland, And he was also horrified by, of course, realising the extent to which Ireland was kind of a a subject nation. And I think that visit to Ireland was also important because he began to realise that actually you couldn't really expect America to develop while it was inside the sort of empire that kept Ireland in such a subject state. And that was the kind of thing. And by the time after the Boston Tea Party, of course, his his position became impossible in London because he was treated appallingly badly by the British government uh, and gradually he could see there really was no prospect of, of healing the breach. And finally, of course, he, uh, he disappeared off back to America in the early part of 1775, just as the war was about to break up.
1: Mm-hmm. You write that Franklin at last found his calling or his vocation in science. How, how and why did this happen? I mean, he was a printer, and I appreciate that there was a connection between science and, and craft like this, but how does he become the, the scientific genius of America? And would you argue that this is how we should best remember him, that is, as a scientist rather than as a diplomat or a political leader? Is this really what makes him uh, important through the ages?
0: Well, personally, I mean, I, I think the science actually is the most important thing. I mean, not everyone would agree with that. I mean, my feeling is that many of the other achievements could have been performed by other people. But, but there was something very special about Frank, Franklin's turn towards science in 1746. I think the point was that he had been reading scientific books for a long time. He had immersed himself in the scientific textbooks, the best scientific textbooks available from Europe, which had been coming over from about 1730 for the Library Company of Philadelphia, which had an excellent collection of these textbooks. So he read all that stuff. He also had a lot of friends in the iron and steel industry. That's an important point. And iron and steel through his fireplace, that an interest in engineering, that was a critical element too. Um, he had a very logical, methodical mind, that's obvious, good chess player and so on and so forth. He was friendly with Logan, who also had an interest in electricity, and Logan was interested in electricity before Franklin was. All of these things kind of prepared him, but I think the really crucial point was autumn of 1746. By this time, Franklin had a, a printing business that was, was doing very well, it, was, it had got to the point where it was sufficiently strong that he could think about retiring. All he had to do was find new staff who could mm-hmm. take on the business. But it was doing very well. His, the colonies were doing quite well because they were doing very well indeed because the colonies had just won this great military victory at Louisbourg. They'd taken the French fortress of Louisbourg. So the colonies were feeling very confident. Uh, he was feeling very confident. His wife was pregnant, which he was delighted about. He was feeling, that was all great. And then in the autumn of 1746, he went back to Boston for a business trip. And as I show in in the book, he he discovered um, or he read a scientific paper uh, translated from French into English, which had appeared in the magazines in London and now it was available in colonies. And this was a superb scientific paper describing the very latest electrical experiments being done Mm. in Paris. I mean, that's the crucial moment. He had some apparatus, which should have been acquired from London for the library company of Philadelphia. So when he got back to, to Philadelphia, he, all these things came together. He, he had his theoretical grounding from his textbooks. He was very good with gadgets and apparatus. Uh, he had seen this account of the, of the electrical experiments. His friend Logan was also aware of how important electricity was as this great unanswered question. And finally, another important point was he had a lot of friends in Philadelphia who were could form a team. There was a guy called Philip Singh, for example, who's a silversmith. He could make the apparatus. He actually could make an electric generator. He had a friend called Thomas Hopkinson who was a lawyer who was also a very bright, methodical kind of person, and he became another assistant. He had a whole series of them, and they all came together and formed the team, and then they started rapidly making progress. First of all, they replicated the, the, the continental experiments, and then they started going further. Um, at a time when the Europeans had produced a lot of interesting empirical work, but they didn't really have a theory to account for the workings of electricity uh, in the way that Franklin did. it all this sort of came together um, early 1747, and that really is the great moment at which Franklin discovers. He knew he was clever. I mean, he'd always known he was clever. Mm -hmm. But he had spent 20 years doing the kind of weekly grind of of producing newspaper, which really is a weekly grind. And suddenly now, he's got the freedom and the leisure, he's got the confidence to move forward very rapidly, and he makes very, very rapid progress indeed. And soon, Logan, James Logan, his friend, is writing to him saying that you've already surpassed what the Europeans are doing. That's Mm -hmm. the great moment. And in the letters Franklin writes that year, 1747-48, you can feel the sense of confidence and excitement and enthusiasm Mm -hmm. as he's discovering this great new calling.
1: And how, in fact, did the Europeans come to know about what Franklin had done? What he had discovered.
0: Well, Franklin had a great, they had a friend in London called Peter Collinson, who was a Quaker merchant. He was a, a merchant in textiles. He was also a great friend of James Logan. And through Collinson, there had been a, a channel of communication opened up between Philadelphia and the Royal Society in London, which had been last about five or six years. And what was happening was that the botanists in particular, zoologists and so on in the colonies, were starting to communicate with the Royal Society with a view to trying to get articles into the Royal Society journal. Mm -hmm. And they weren't very successful at doing that, but nevertheless there was a channel of communication. So as soon as Franklin started to write up his work into papers, they would go over to Collinson, who would start circulating among the members of the Royal Society. Mm -hmm. Once they got to the Royal Society, then they quickly got to Paris, because the Comte de Buffon, who was the greatest French scientist of the day, was in close correspondence with the Royal Society. Mm. And so the Comte de Buffon, who was aware of the electric experiments, he and his friends, as soon as they were aware of, for example, Franklin's theory that lightning was were identical, they tried it themselves in 1752. And you get this very rapid communication. All the more rapid because the war between France and England ended in 1748. And so there was now completely clear, free and open uh, trade passing back and forth across the Atlantic.
1: It's interesting that you said at the beginning of this statement that There were lots of people who could have done what he did politically and diplomatically. But I think about Franklin's diplomatic career, and then I think about John Adams, (laughs) that that really I'm not sure. And it may be because his reputation preceded him as a man of genius and science, but I, I think you sell him a little short well, in that assumption that anybody There were, that anybody that, well, there were th-
0: others who could have done it. I mean, I think, you know, the diplomacy in Paris was, you know, but of course it was only possible because the French had such huge ground for him. And a lot of that did come out of the scientific work. I mean, that was how he really made his name in France. Uh, because, you know, France... I mean, people often say that the, the greatest country in the world, the greatest power in the world was, was Great Britain and had the biggest army and all the rest it. It was not true. The France was still the greatest power in Europe, uh, and Russia... Actually and the fight. best food. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, and Russia had the biggest army, so Britain didn't have the largest right. army. Britain was simply... There were certain things about Britain that were special, but by no means was she necessarily the, the greatest emperor or anything like that. But the French had... It was the science that g- won him the respect. And also the fact, that of course, he was fighting the British, which, of course, the French were happy about too. But... but, <laughs> but no, I think you're right. I mean, yes, maybe I was a bit strong. I, mean, I, I think the diplomacy certainly had to be done. Um, although, again, you should always remember that it was the French Navy that really sort of won the Revolutionary War. I mean, it, right, of course. But, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. So do you think there's anything left now to do about Franklin? Do you think we now have a sort of uh, uh, complete understanding or a, gl- a complete enough understanding of him that we can sort of close... Close the book on him, or is there something more you would think of?
0: Well, I mean, we're not going to close the book because there's still so much controversy about Franklin, and I mean, there's still so many arguments about, for example, his religious beliefs, um, about exactly what role he played in in politics, for example. So, I don't think we'd close the book. Um, the point about this book is I, would only, I only wanted to write it because I felt that I could actually seriously add some value. And The, the period where it was easiest to add the value was the earlier period. Mm-hmm. Once you move beyond 1750 or 1755 or so, the source material about Franklin kind of explodes to the extent that it actually becomes unmanageable. Um, I mean, if you take, for example, the, 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 the Yale project for the, for the Franklin, editing the Franklin papers. Now, they began that project in 1952, the first concept, mm-hmm. They started the, the, the first work on the first volume series in 1954. It wasn't published in 1959. Uh, volume, I think it was 43, came out in 2017. And they're not <laughs> going to finish to 2024, at least. Which means that, you know you've got a 70-year project... Just to put his papers together.
1: That's why I was always happy to work on the Hamilton exactly. Papers.
0: Well, it's always easy to be, able to be right <laughs> and it's a bit like painting a railway bridge. In the sense, by the time they got to the end, they've got to start again at the beginning because right. they right. they will now have to go back to the beginning exactly because more material has appeared
1: exactly. So uh,
0: there is a sense in which Franklin is kind of inexhaustible, but also a sense in which it's the, the period that is easiest to work on from my point of view was the earlier
1: one. And yeah. it, t- tell us a little bit about where you found the sources.
0: Well, some in Britain, some in America. Um, there is a lot of material. There is certainly a lot of material in England about the, 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 the Franklin family in England uh, before Franklin's before Franklin's birth. A lot of material, far more than I expected. Uh, there is also something very important up in in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is the manuscript um, books of his uncle Benjamin which are at the American Antiquarian Society, though those are really very important indeed, and they've not been studied as much as they should be. Mm -hmm. They're quite remarkable. His uncle was a talented poet, a very talented individual. Um, The Historical Society of Pennsylvania is a real treasure trove because they have these wonderful collections of of letters by merchants, Quaker merchants, Mm -hmm. which which go back far into the 18th century. And what they do is, if, if if you look at those books in parallel, with those letters in parallel with Franklin's autobiography, you can, you can take a scene that Franklin describes and you can work out exactly what else was happening at the same time on you know, the same day, the weather conditions, all kinds of things. And you can see, sometimes you can find a lot more out about what the characters are that Franklin describes. Mm-hmm. So things can be really... put. In the, the Historic Side of Pennsylvania really has the most astonishing collections and um, some of the finest I've ever seen. Uh, and people are still working on them. Um, mm-hmm. They've uh, they're, they're not by any means been fully absorbed.
1: Uh, not to put you on the spot, but what's next? Well, good question. Actually, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's always
0: a question of feasibility rather than anything else. And I can mean, always think of adopting some projects, but it's a question of what's actually feasible in the time available. Um, one possibility is, is to just simply write another book about Franklin, uh, a sequel, which I have been thinking about. Except that I don't do you want to sort of become committed to writing kind of multi volume life of Benjamin Franklin because <laughs> it, it could well see me, you know. Threw into my dotage.
1: <laughs> I have to tell you that after I finished my first book, I had a job interview, and they said, and Carol, what what do you plan to do next? To which I replied, rest a lot. <laughs> I did not get that job. So, so I have learned yes, that well you have to have somewhere, someone is going to mm. ask you what your next project is going going to be. I, I would love to see you carry Franklin further because I think your take on his the why he was such a good diplomat is one that most mm-hmm. people don't don't embrace uh, or haven't thought about. So I think you yeah, can the, the interesting
0: thing you're competing with probably the best book ever written, written about Franklin in literary scientists is Stacy Schiff's book about his period in Paris. And that you know, is an astonishingly good book and um, not one I would sort of want to try and compete try. with.
1: All right. Let us. These are your questions. I feel enormously powerful at this moment because I get to decide what will be asked. Did Franklin have any interest in marriage when he was younger? What was his relationship with the women in his life like?
0: Well, marriage. Of course, he never actually legally married uh, right. Deborah, of course, um, because she was already married to his chap. Details, details. Bigamy. Fact, bigamy seems to be quite common, actually. A number of his yes. friends committed bigamy because because, it was easy to get away with in those days. Um just in marriage. Well, um, his account of marriage is not really very romantic. I mean, he wasn't really right. much of a romantic, frankly. Right. Uh, he certainly... Doesn't conceal the fact that he had a series of, of escapades of one kind or another before he was married. and Of course, he produced William Franklin, his son, who was illegitimate, and so on. Um, ugh, the women in his life—he seems to have got more interested actually as he got older. I mean, because the, the time with, the, with the, the most entertaining anecdotes about his about his relations with women are from the Paris years. You know, long after mm-hmm. the, the, the period of this book. I, in the period I'm writing about, it's it's, it's kind of scanty material. Mm-hmm. Um, One thing I have done is I've tried to rehabilitate some of the women characters, particularly Deborah Franklin. Now, you know, the trouble is the material related to Deborah Franklin is so sparse and scanty. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is disgraceful that no one really gathered up her letters or belongings and so on. You know, we have things that survive, belongings, letters, from people who are far less important than she was in the 18th century. There's really nothing there. This is
1: common for women. Exactly. Now, what (laughs)
0: I've tried to do is rehabilitate to some extent by trying to find more out about her family and where she came from, and there's material there. I also tried to rehabilitate the woman he tried to seduce in London or to try and bring her more into the story. This was Mrs. T, uh, who um, was James Ralph's girlfriend. I mentioned her earlier on. He tried to seduce her in, in, in London in 1725 or six, And I found her a really interesting character, you know, because frankly, because he does mention her at some length, and he obviously was something stuck in his mind. So what I tried to do was I tried to establish exactly who she was. And there is a section where I think she may have actually been called Jenny Wilkins. And I've managed to sort of unearth some children in London that gives some idea of who she was. Um, and that's the thing I try to do. Because I think you know, one needs to sort of pay respect to the other people in the story. If you put Franklin too much front and centre, first of all, you forget that Franklin actually was a team player in much of his work. Mm-hmm. And secondly, there's a sense in which you're not doing justice to those people. They shouldn't be seen as simply people who are... Kind of um, secondary bit part players right. in the great drama. Right. They, they have, you know, they're entitled to their own, their own respect, so to speak.
1: I have read <coughs> where, out of all the founding fathers, that Franklin would fit into today's society the easiest. What are your? Th- I always tell people they're dead. I have no idea, but. I'll put it to you. What well, are your thoughts on I, this? You're right. I
0: mean, it's, it's a bit anachronistic. However, there is no question that he had the broadest experience, because the nature of his experience as printer and as, and as, and as somebody who had travelled to London and been to all these different places and done so many different things journalist and, and uh, publisher and scientist as well. Mm-hmm. He had that variety to him. You mm-hmm. see, uh, he had flexibility, and he was prepared to change his opinions. And he did change his opinions as he grew older. So certainly he would, I think he would be able to fit in more easily anywhere than the other founding fathers, um, uh, not necessarily in modern society, but in from any society, actually. And he, he was adventurous, you know. I mean, to, to, to sail off to Paris as he did, you know, when most people are sort of thinking of sort of retiring to the golf course or whatever, um, <laughs> yeah, and they did actually have golf courses then as well, um, in, even in Pennsylvania. Uh, that, 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 he was a brave, courageous chap who was prepared to be flexible, so... To that extent, yes, he would fit in more easily than some of the others. I think George Washington would fit in, actually. Really? Yeah, I do, yes. Because, you know, Washington was a, you know, he was a professional soldier. Uh, and again, there are certain aspects of his life as a professional soldier which he would find, you know, he would not find it difficult, I think, these days, George Washington, to sort of fit into um, a British or American military environment.
1: How about Hamilton.
0: No, I'm not sure about him,
1: actually.
0: Isn't there there a musical that explores this? (laughs) Yes, there is. You'd (laughs)
1: have to wrap your answer to me, Yeah, exactly. Okay. I understand that Franklin had a fraught relationship with his sister. Did this develop in his early years?
0: Well, I wouldn't say it was occasionally Uh, fraught. The material, you know, there's obviously this excellent book by Jill Lepore, Book of Ages about Jill Lepore, about Jane Meakin, which I think is... You know, really excellent book. And in many ways, I see mine as a sort of companion piece to, to her mm-hmm. book. Though they're very different. Yeah, there were some periods when the relationship was fraught, um, particularly during the, the so-called Great Awakening uh, in the 1740s when she appears to have become a, a devotee of George Whitefield, the preacher, um, whom Franklin was friendly with but didn't necessarily agree with. Mm-hmm. So there was some tension there, I think, from a religious point of view. She was um, an evangelical Christian. Um, So there was some tension there. But it seems to have been tidied, you know, to smoothed over relatively relatively smoothly. Of course, the thing was, they were to some extent driven together in later life because, of course, they were the survivors. Mm. You know, by 1760, Franklin famously had, I think, was altogether, he's one of 17 children. By 1767, all of them were dead, the siblings, except himself and Jane. Not only that, but all of the the closest friends of his youth were dead. It's a very sad thing. Nothing isn't mentioned, the fact that the amount of bereavement Franklin actually had to endure. He had a whole series of very, very close friends in Philadelphia, whom he refers to. um, And almost all of them were dead well before the revolution. So he had to find new friends, which he did.
1: Hmm. How did Franklin develop his notion that public virtue is so much more important than private morality?
0: I'm not sure he did think that, actually. I mean, I, well, he certainly thought public virtue was very important. Um, and I think, he, yeah, I think he did think... Probably, I mean, whether he necessarily lived up to his private moral ideals is another matter. But that's, Who does? That's a problem we all have, <laughs> exactly, yes. Um, the public virtue, his, his belief in public virtue was something that he, he fully kind of took on board from the kind of discourse of virtue that was common in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. But the difference was he actually did try to put it into practice in, in, in Philadelphia. I mean, he was, you know, he was always a devoted reader of, of the Roman, Greek and Roman classics, albeit in translation of people like Plutarch, Roman heroes, Socrates. And he was fascinated by Socrates. And so that kind of view of public virtue was one that he'd fully absorbed. I think, no, I think he did have quite a strong private morality. Um, it's hard, really, you know, when you dig at things, to, to find him being... He was very, very competitive, very tough in business, no question. He was a very formidable competitor. And he and his principal rival in, in Philadelphia certainly tried every tactic they could to do each other down. But I wouldn't call that, actually. I mean, that's not a sort
1: of moral failing. You mentioned that Franklin was a voracious reader. Where and how was he educated?
0: Well, it is a very good question. Now, we know that he was educated at what became the Boston Latin School, but only for one year. I think then it was called South Grammar School. He then went to a thing called a writing school, which was, was not a school to learn creative writing. It was a school for learning calligraphy and, and bookkeeping, but the school basically to teach you how to be a tradesman or, uh, or to run a shop. Apart from that, he, the interesting thing is, what was he actually taught by his father and his uncle? Because he clearly learned to read well before he went to the Latin school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it must have been his father and his uncle, uh, Uncle Benjamin. Uh, Uncle Benjamin was, was, was himself um, an excellent, an excellent, highly literate, as father was. So, really, it would have come from them. There's also an inter-question as to well where his father Desire, got his education, whether he went to a grammar school or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, we don't really know as much as we would like. But I think it must have been essentially in in, in the family home. In the
1: family, Franklin was so interested in engineering. Why did he care so little for innovating in the printing process or improving the printed quality of his paper?
0: Oh, he did. I mean, he did improve the... He, what he did, in fact, was they actually... He took part in the formation of a paper industry in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, up until about 1730 or essentially they were importing their paper from England, which was obviously expensive. And they were importing the lead type as well. The, the, the lead type, they, they, they had to import because um, uh, there wasn't any lead on the Eastern Sea one. The paper, um, the paper, as I say, so what he did was he had to find new, new, new source of local paper. So he formed these alliances and partnerships with local papermakers around Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. They, on the various creeks and streams running down into the Delaware and the Schuylkill Rivers, uh, they created paper mills. And, and he would collect the rags at his shop in, in Philadelphia, and then they would take it up to the paper mill. So, yes, he did. Uh, He certainly, that's true, he did not innovate in the the actual technical process of of a printing press. But then not many people did. It was was only much later, I think, in the 19th century that that people started inventing the kind of linotype machines that were then Mm -hmm. used for printing newspapers and so on. So Mm -hmm. not many people did.
1: This is an interesting question. Were there scientific areas Franklin warned others not to explore?
0: Not sure they were actually it 's a pretty good question I must, hmm. I must go back to the Yale edition and have another look
1: hmm. walter isaacson 's biography indicates that Franklin changed from a supporter of the king in Parliament to dis, being disillusioned and insisting on independence. Is this what you found
0: oh yeah, i mean that 's really a part of my previous book, Emperor on the Edge, about the process by which the British came to fight America in the 1770s. But yes, and that's essentially it. I mean, it's what I was speaking about earlier. He gradually became to see that America was not simply um, uninterested in American aspirations. It might actually be positively hostile to them. And when he came to see that, yeah, and his scepticism about the British
1: Empire deepened,
0: then there really was no alternative.
1: Which accomplishment do you think Franklin was most proud of?
0: Well, it depends on which part of his life. I think by the end of his life, he would have been most proud of the diplomatic work in Paris and his role in the Constitution, mm-hmm. and the role in the new Constitution for Pennsylvania as well, rather than just for the federal Constitution. So I think it depends on which, which part of his life. Um, uh, you were talking about not, though, his writing, I don't think. I mean, Franklin was proud of his writing. You know, he was a very competent writer, but I don't think he would have regarded it as something that was, if you like, a kind of fit occupation for a sort of a grown man to do all his life.
1: And yet he supported his friend, who was a poet, for all that time. Yes,
0: but the James, what happened with James Ralph was that James Ralph the poet came a, he had a <laughs> cataclysmically disastrous career. And uh, what happened was that James Ralph, I mean, it is, I mean, it is really quite entertaining, but also rather sad. Uh, Ralph, basically, what happened was in the 1720s, circa 1726, the key poets of the age, the key writers, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, John Gay, were all Tories. James Ralph had this brilliant idea, as he thought, of becoming a Whig poet in support of the government under Sir Robert Walpole. So he, what he did was he published this astonishingly rude satirical poem called Sawney, uh, Sawney being English slang for a Scotsman, uh, attacking Jonathan Swift, John Gay and Alexander Pope. And, and there's <laughs> a sex that would deal with this. And the language he used about them really was incredibly rude. Um, the problem was, of course, the Beggar's Opera was by far the most popular thing on the London stage. And gay Pope and and Swift were much more popular than Franklin. And so Pope and his colleagues gathered their supporters together and they began a kind of campaign of vilification of James Ralph, in which James Ralph's career basically collapsed. I mean, they went around calling him Jemmy Ninny Hammer and this sort of thing, a (laughs) self-smock-faced, self-worshipping prig. And this sort of torrent of abuse, which went on through the newspapers in London for months and months and months, completely wrecked James Ralph's career as a poet. He then became a friend of Henry Fielding, the, the novelist, mm-hmm. the author of Tom Jones, and Ralph rehabilitated himself by becoming Henry Fielding's assistant as an actor-manager in the theatre in Haymarket. Uh, but even so, it had a very difficult period. And I did talk about this in, in, at the beginning of one of the chapters because I think it's interesting that, that Franklin's friend, James Ralph, got so close to some of these really fascinating and important centrifuges in English literature. And the way I look at it is that Franklin saw Ralph as a kind of cautionary tale. The fate that befell Ralph in London is what might have befallen Franklin if he had stayed in London and if he had also tried to become a man of letters.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And last question. Where did Franklin learn diplomacy?
0: Well, that, that's a very good question, actually, because his, his talent for it did develop. I think one source for it would have been, of course, the fact that he was involved in d- diplomacy with the, with the Native Americans. Uh, in the 1750s of course because the, the relation to the Native Americans was becoming more and more difficult and fraught in, in, in Pennsylvania so that was one possibility. Um, he also read a great deal about his history and so on so he would have learned something there. Um, his involvement in Pennsylvania politics I don't think would have really taught him very much of the kind of skills he needed. He would have observed things of course in London because during his period in London he would have met and we know he did meet the, the various diplomats in London between 1757 when he went there and 1775 when he came home. But uh, it is a very good question. I think to some extent it was learned on the job. Uh, and he just had a... Because he had a kind of a native... By the time I often remember he, he, was, he became an active diplomat, he had had the great experience also of having been a newspaper editor and journalist. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you're a newspaper editor and journalist, you do have the, the scope to acquire an enormous knowledge of human nature because you meet so many different kinds of people. And you also have to have a thick skin, you have to be resilient, you have to be fast on your feet. So some of those skills he would have transferred over from journalism. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you so much. I urge you to read this book.
0: Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.